if someone had walked into my bedroom at age 14 and said, there's this thing called being trans, have you considered that that might be you? I'd have known immediately. But hindsight is obviously a wonderful thing. Content warnings for this episode include anti-trans bigotry, anti-gay bigotry, racism, intersex mutilation, and colonialism. Miati folks, welcome to Genderful, a talk show interviewing gender diverse folks about their special interests. The name of our show celebrates that gender expansiveness is wonderful. Hi, I'm Gender Master, and my pronouns are they, them. Hi, I'm Atlas of Phoenix, and my pronouns are also they, them. The focus of our show is to interview trans, non-binary, agender, and gender diverse people regarding their special interests, passion projects, and resources for the gender diverse community. We want our audience to know that this show is hosted by two folks who also identify as non-binary, transmasculine, neurodivergent, and disabled with the passion for telling trans stories. We invite you to remember that we are whole people with robust lives, friendships, challenges, and successes. We love and are loved, and we are delighted to share these stories with you. As always, we kindly remind our listeners that no person is a monolith of their identities, Your identities can change over time and are valid every step of the way. And if you think you're gender diverse, you are gender diverse. There are no social or medical prerequisites to be included in the community. Jennifer would like to acknowledge the indigenous peoples and unceded lands that the producers, hosts, and guests live and have dwelt upon. Today we honor the Coast Salish and the Mohawk, Algonquin, and Anishinaabawaki. I'm sorry, Anishinaabawaki. Uh, that one is very hard for me to pronounce. We honor the elders, the human, plant, and animal ancestors of these lands, and celebrate the living descendants of these peoples. May all beings tend these lands for the goodness of the next seven generations and beyond. And I'm based in the UK. Um, I'm in Leeds in the north of England. We don't do land acknowledgements here, not because we don't think that honoring mm-hmm. the indigenous elders and inhabitants of lands where that's relevant is incredibly important, but because here in the UK, we don't have an indigenous population in the same way. And in fact, attempts to identify and narrow down one are usually used for bigotry and for excluding rather than including. Um, So for that reason, no land acknowledgement from me, Um, but I honor everyone in Britain um, and I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. Thanks for being our guest, Ken. Welcome to Jennerful episode 92, 91, lol, <laughs> numbers. We're going to get to 100 and then we're going to stop counting. <laughs> That's the plan. We'll just start a new um, season. Start over an episode. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, welcome to Jennerful episode 91. This week, our guest, Kit Hayam, they, he pronouns, is chatting with us about their book, Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender, published in September 2022. Welcome to Genderful, Kit. Thank you so much for having me. This is my first time on Twitch ever, so doubly exciting. (laughs) Nice. Well, welcome to the show. How exciting. Is this also your first podcast or you've done podcasts before, just not Twitch things? I've done podcasts before, but not Twitch things because I am old. So... You might be the youngest um, one here. <laughs> I might be the youngest one here, but yeah, for whatever reason, it's um, never been something I've encountered before. So this is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> That's fun. It is a certain subgenre of the internet, for sure. Yeah, that's fun. Um, well, Kit, 
we we have a couple of questions we like to ask all of our guests. So I want to start with some of those and then we'll sort of switch topics to your specific flavor. Um, but what are some things that you can trace back to your youth that indicated you might be gender diverse one day? It's funny because this is a lovely question and like some of it does kind of relate to my special topic um, of history. Um, I mean, like on the one hand, if you look at photos of me as a kid, you will see my parents didn't have very much money and we most, my brother and I mostly wore cast-offs from a family who had two boys who were much um, older than us. So you'll see me in enormous mask clothes. So in that sense, you know, the photos look like I'm very gender diverse already. Um, but really the thing that was going on for me um, from quite an early age was a really intense emotional identification with particularly gay and particularly gay male experience, but queer experience more generally um, in kind of literature that I read and films that I saw um, and history that I read, especially. Um, and that was something that was probably the most important thing in my life. You know, it led me to make a lot of decisions about like what I was going to focus on at university um, what I was going to um, kind of structure a lot of decisions in my life around. But I have no idea what it was. I was just like, clearly, this is a weird thing that's going on for me. Guess that's just the thing I'll have to deal with. Um, but looking back, if someone had walked into my bedroom at age 14 and said, there's this thing called being trans, have you considered that that might be you? I'd have known immediately. Um, but hindsight is obviously a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's part of why we make this show, so we can slip into people's bedrooms and tell them there's this uh -huh. thing called being trans. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> we're, here, we're here to trans everyone. <laughs> Happy Pride Month in the Happy States. Happy Pride. Okay. <laughs> uh, that's actually a good segue Pride to everywhere. Next, uh, that's a good segue to the next question. So uh, we all have like kind of our individual journeys and, mm -hmm. and uh, how we identify can change over time. That's, uh, you know, it's not like just a point A to B for some people. It's point A, B, C, D, Q. X. So uh, how would you say your relationship to gender has evolved over time? Yeah, totally messily in the way that you've just described. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's interesting because because I was so um, identified with queer experience for such a long time while thinking, but I'm a straight woman, how can this be? Um, that when I discovered that being trans was a thing, I kind of worried that it was appropriative that I was somehow kind of finding a way into the queer community through the back door and I didn't really belong. And so I did a lot mm. of, oh, well, I'm non-binary, but I don't think I'm trans, not really. Um, mm. And then it became really clear that A, that wasn't true, and B, it wasn't a good way to get anyone to like take my gender seriously. So then I went through a phase of um, identifying as a trans man, and that was affirming for me as a way of distancing myself from femaleness, also a really useful way to um, get people to actually use my pronouns um, but ultimately not the right thing for me and really it took moving to a bigger city where I now live in Leeds um, and meeting um, other non-binary people to be able to embrace the fact that that was the right thing for me um, and so it's been a very circuitous route from like non-binary for reasons of shame back to mm -hmm. non-binary for reasons of actually that being the thing that really affirms my experience. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's so incredibly relatable. Uh, I mean, I have some personal experience with that where, you know, I identified as cishet for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, oh, am I really trans? It's like, oh, am I like just trying to insert myself into this community? Or it's yeah. like, it's like, there's this question of authenticity. What's like, well, I never experienced gender dysphoria before. I mean, is that like a requirement? Spoilers, it isn't. Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, I, 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 and I would have to assume that's, your experience is very common among gender diverse mm-hmm. people. Uh, and I wish more people kind of realized that. So this is why we're getting, uh, you know, your story out there. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. And I wish more people talked about it because I think it would help a lot more people to realize that actually their experience is valid and not something that they yeah. have to be. Absolutely. Around. Absolutely. So let me switch topics and let's talk a bit about your book before we were trans a new history of gender. Can you tell us what it's about and what led you to write it? Sure. So before we were trans, the like one sentence summary is it's a global history of gender nonconformity. Um, nice. I think the, you know, the longer summary to unpack it is it's about people in the past who don't really fit into kind of modern and or Western trans categories. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might talk a bit more about this like as we go through. Mm-hmm. The fact that mm-hmm. it's called Before We Were Trans for a very specific reason. I don't refer to all the people in the book as trans mm-hmm. people. Um, but um, So people who don't fit into those categories, but who still show us that actually gender has never been something that's like uncomplicated or uncontested or essentialized, that people have always been kind of messing with gender and thinking in really creative ways about how it relates to the body or how it doesn't, um, and that that is um, the case across the world that it's not just um, a Western or a recent invention. Um, And the reason I wanted to write about that is because basically I feel like we have in, you know, in the contemporary Western world, we have these really, really narrow ideas of what makes someone a really trans person. And we've actually already kind of started talking about that in relation to our own experiences, Mm -hmm. right? Um, So, you know, for someone to be really trans, they have to have known since they were three years old and they have to have experienced Mm. dysphoria Mm. and their gender has to be really stable and not fluid, has to be binary. And they probably have to be white. Otherwise, like, that's a bit suspect because we have um, really, really normative and racist ideas of what it means to be a proper trans person. Um, Mm. And all those ideas, they're really harmful for people in the present. They're also really harmful when we start trying to use them to look at history. We miss a lot of the diversity that's going on. Um, so for all of those reasons, um, I wanted to write this in order to strike back against all of the anti-trans ideas that we have um, that are telling us that not only is this something new and something non-traditional, but that because of that, that means it can't be real. Um, and mm. yeah, for all of those reasons, this was something important to me to write about really relate to that whole like being frustrated that people are getting it wrong so i'm gonna go write a big thing about it (laughs) (laughs) my my senior thesis was totally along those lines like oh people are getting this queer christian thing wrong i'm gonna go write a whole thing about it (laughs) yeah that's so relatable i have a um, reading group of other fantastic like trans history academics and we spent a lot of time complaining about the fact we just needed a thing to refer back to where we could be like no this is what trans history is and then we could all go off and do something else that was you know the built on it and um yeah so very lucky that i got to write the book that's so cool i love that 
so I, I, I mean, I have some personal opinions about this next question, but uh, so your book is about uh, trans history, uh, but the word trans or transgender is, you know, it's a, it's a relatively new term. So uh, when we're talking about, you know, the historical context of trans people, you know, before so-called trans people was a thing, uh, like, can we, can we really talk about that? Uh, so, or how do we talk about that? It would be the question I would have. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on it and um, <laughs> the man throws around. I mean, my own, my own perspective is that, yeah, not only is a recent term, it's also a term in English that it comes primarily out of a kind of um, Western way of thinking about gender. Um, and I think for that reason, and from a more kind of general, like ethical perspective on history, I think it's really important not to put words into people's mouths or to describe people in the term in terms that they wouldn't use themselves. Right? I think um, we know as trans people how painful it is when people don't understand us on our own terms. And so we know also that it would be equally unethical to apply that to the past. The way that I kind of work with that is, you know, you could stop there. You could say, okay, there's no trans people in the past um, and there's no trans people in cultures that don't have a concept of transness and just stop. Um, and that would be okay, but it would leave like a vacuum open for bigots to fill by saying, so you're admitting that, there's no, um, that transness is a new invention. Um, and it would also leave, it would be kind of, abandoning trans people in the present who actually do find it really important to be able to look into history and say, oh, look, there's someone like me. I'm not completely the only one. I'm not alone. And, you know, that's important too. Um, but what I think is really useful is a distinction between talking about trans people and talking about trans history. And I think talking about trans history is talking about the history of gender not being tied to the body and gender not being binary and gender being something that people have always played with and engaged with on the basis of self-identification, that's trans history and that's history we can all get behind. But it's probably not only trans history, you know, it's probably also often gay history, lesbian history, women's history, all of those things. Um, and and uh, yeah, for me, that's a really important distinction. Um, what are your feelings about it? Well, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting that uh, that you bring that up because I uh, I know there's a section in your book that kind of talks about how like some uh, like Arabic and Middle Eastern cultures see how gender presentation and uh, gender like they 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 would see like transness and uh, being homosexual being the same thing. So uh, this whole like concept of like us separating the two concepts of gender identity and uh, and sexual attraction. Um, is not common to every culture. Uh, so again, like we have always been here. I mean, the, as anyone who will tell you, like um, there is a genetic component to being trans. Like it's it, it's in it's in the brain. It's very well studied in neuroscience. Uh, so this is not hardly a new concept of people uh, identifying with a different gender or wanting to present uh, in a different gender. That's what's uh, kind of the norm for their society. I would say the only like new thing in the last like few decades is the advances in medical technology that allows us to medically transition but as we were saying before that's not a requirement for being trans so i think there's there's a false equivalency there of people equating being trans with tr medically transitioning which is not the case so uh but yeah um 
that's just a really long-winded way of saying that, you know, trans people have been around forever and there's nothing new about this. And of course there is a history we can talk about that goes back centuries. Yeah, definitely. And I, go ahead. ahead. I was just going to say, even the thing about medical transition, there have been people who have um, made efforts to do that in the past. Anyway, if you look at, um, this isn't in the book, but if you look, for example, at the um, um, ancient Roman cult of the Galli, who um, were people assigned male at birth who um, presented in a feminine way and had access to a form of gender reassignment surgery in that period. Um, so, mm. you know, even, even the invention of medical transition is a lot older than people get a credit for, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's become more advanced in recent years. Yeah. I mean, it, we're better at it. Definitely. But, uh, again, this, yeah. this is not a new thing. <laughs> Why was it important to you to write about a global history of gender nonconformity? P.S. I love that you did that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it was it was both important and tricky because I was conscious that um, yeah, it was incredibly important to combat narratives that um, say that this is a thing that the West is imposing on the rest of the world. Actually, a lot of the time, the only time cultures feel like that, the only reason cultures feel like that is because they did have a really rich tradition of gender diversity, and then that was suppressed by Western colonialism. Now they're gradually mm-hmm. kind of clawing it back. Um, so it was really important for me to make that point. It was also something I was really keen to get right, because I think there's this thing that white trans people do, and I'm sure you know people listening will recognize this, um, where we kind of, we're very tempted to just use examples of gender diversity from cultures that aren't our own to kind of prove the validity of our own genders. Like, obviously, gender is not binary. Have you heard of two-spirit people? Have you heard of hijras? And then there's just, there's no effort to actually understand what life is like for those groups of people or to think about, okay, if I'm taking from them by, you know, using them to validate my own gender, what can I give back? There's no attempt to always understand those gendered experiences on their own cultural terms. Um, so I really didn't want it to be a book that was trying to do that. I was really keen to um, take people on their own terms, um, even if that was something that, you know, as a white person, I couldn't really empathize with. Um, and also to kind of use the book as a way to make visible the way that the fight against transphobia is always entangled with the fight against racism. The only reason we have a idea that sex is binary, for example, is because of eugenicist ideas, ideas that tried to hold up white bodies as the most perfectly divided into male and female. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you only have to look at who are the athletes today who are disproportionately likely to have their sex questioned. It's black women, always black women, because our norms of what counts as a normative female body are white norms. They're not neutral. So it was part of feeling like these were feeling like it was okay to tell the stories of people from cultures um, that I didn't belong to was trying to use the book to really make a contribution to anti-racist history, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that. Uh, I love that so much. It's, uh, you know, because trans athletes is very much like in vogue at the moment or or everyone Mm. seems to have an opinion about it. And, uh, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, Interesting is probably not the right word, but it is interesting to see how a lot of the arguments that people are using against, you know, trans women participating in women's sports are the exact same arguments that people used several decades ago to try to exclude Black women from participating in sports. I mean, it's the exact same thing. 
So, uh, so segue, uh, do you have a favorite historical story from the book? I love all of them, but I want to shout <laughs> out one person um, who was a 17th century servant who went sometimes by Thomas and sometimes by Thomasine Hall. Um, so they were born in the north of England, in Newcastle, um, and they lived for a little while as a man, as a soldier. They lived for a little while as a woman, um, as a lace maker. Um, and then they took the chance um, to emigrate to the very small early colony of Virginia um, in North America. Um, and it's there that they become kind of visible to the historical record because they were put on trial um, initially for having um, a sexual relationship outside of marriage with a woman called Bess. Um, but then the trial really very quickly became interested in what the heck is your gender? Because it turned out that in this little village of about 30 people, some people thought Thomas was a man. Some people thought Thomasine was a woman. Some people thought this person is both man and woman. And what we have, when, when they asked Thomas or Thomasine, what is your gender then? Um, they said, and we have this on legal record, they said, in a court of law, I am both man and woman in 1629. Um, wow. And I think for someone in that period and for someone who is, was really, really not in a position of power, you know, the person on trial an indentured servant, um, to be able to articulate that so confidently, to have that self-knowledge of not being man or woman. Um, and what that probably meant to them is that they both had an intersex body and were what we would now call trans, like both of those things were true for them. Um, and yeah, to, to be able to articulate that is incredible and a real kind of inspiration for me in terms of self-definition and resilience, I think. Yeah, it's, it's just a it's just a perfect example of you know we've always been here, yeah. so it's. Yeah. Um, Kit, what surprised you while writing this book? Did you discover stories you weren't expecting, or was there part of the process that really was unexpected? Anything like that? Yeah, do you know what surprised me? Um, it it was when I was writing. So I. As I've mentioned, I wrote, um, it's a global history, so I'm writing a lot um, about cultures that are not my own, and particularly about the impact of Western colonialism on people's gendered experiences. Um, and what surprised me in a way was that what I was expecting to find was like a story of, you know, beautiful gender diversity, Western colonists come in um, and suppress that, and then there's less gender diversity afterwards. And that was in some cases definitely what I found. But in other cases, I found a lot more resilience and creativity from people in those colonized cultures than I was expecting. And it was amazing to find that. Um, one example is um, Njinga Mbande, a monarch in um, 17th century um, Ndongo, which is now Angola. Um, and they were assigned female at birth, but they were crowned king when they were on the throne. Mm. Um, and that that decision to be crowned king, to style themselves as king, it was partly made in relation to their own culture, but it was also partly made in relation to having to negotiate with Portuguese colonizers, get them to take that, that seriously. And so rather than having, okay, the Portuguese kind of squashed all of the gender diversity, we have these really creative responses and these resilient responses to colonialism. And actually, sometimes it's just shaping different ways of people living their genders rather than suppressing them. And it was really um, kind of affirming for me to discover that um, 
that agency in the face of such oppression. Um, and that was something that surprised me, and I was really glad that I discovered it. Um, we have Kimsey here, who's from South Africa, saying, wait, an African story? <laughs> yeah, um, there are a few, West, particularly West African rather than South African stories. Um, but um, if, yeah, if you get hold of the book, um, you'll find some West African history. Uh-huh. I love that. Now, that does remind me of a film that came out recently uh, about a female king. Uh, in Africa, uh, is that is this the same person, or is this? It's a not, different... so are you thinking of the woman <laughs> okay. king? Yes. Yeah. So that's um, that's a whole different story, and okay. definitely <laughs> something I would still recommend. There's a lot of traditions of um, mm. assigned female at birth masculinity in different areas of West Africa. Um, so yeah, would wholeheartedly recommend that film for sure. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, so this may. This is probably not a surprise to anyone, but writing a book is hard. <laughs> what would you say is was the most challenging thing to uh, research or write about? I think, so the last chapter of the book is about um, gendered experiences kind of entangled with spirituality. Um, all of the, ch- it's not a chronological narrative, the book, I should have said, it's more about all of the factors that make, that make people say, that's not trans history, it's just dot, 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 like, it's just women making their way in a patriarchal society, or it's just <laughs> gay history, or whatever. And so, and the last chapter of the book is about um, like spiritual gendered experiences. Um, mm. And I was raised as a Quaker, but faith isn't something that's kind of particularly important in my life now. Um, and certainly not the main um, experiences I write about in that chapter are different kinds of um, gendered experience that now come under the intertribal umbrella term to spirit. Um, but also um, Hydra experiences. And none of those were experiences that I could, you know, fully empathize with. But it was, so what was challenging about that was taking those experiences on their own cultural and spiritual terms. And also in some cases, realizing that I couldn't include them in the book because they weren't really gendered experiences at all. Um, I had, for example, and I write a bit about this in the book, I had planned to include a section reflecting on the work of Akweke Amezi. Um, you might know the novel Freshwater, um, among other brilliant works, um, Nigerian writer. And they, um, Freshwater is the story of an Ogbanje, which is an Igbo Nigerian spirit um, born to a human mother. And it is articulated in a way that looks to a Western gaze like trans experience, but actually, Amezi has said, this is not about transness. This is about a Igbo-specific spiritual entity. And so actually, it became clear that it wouldn't be the right thing to include that in the book um, because it wasn't a trans narrative. And so what was challenging for me was realizing that sometimes taking things on their own cultural terms actually meant saying this isn't gender at all and this doesn't kind of belong here. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's not that's not that surprising because, you know, it's it's there's a lot of intersectionality when it comes to like queerness and queer, st- queer stories and queer history. And it's, it, you can't really always extract just the trans story from, from everything else that's, that's going on. Right. Yeah. And in a way that's kind of exactly what the book is about. Like another thing that we're supposed mm-hmm. to do when, in order to prove that we're quote unquote really trans is to prove that our feelings are definitely just about gender. And they're not about like the role we play in society or our sexualities or how we like mm-hmm. to dress. And no one demands that of cis people that they can like perfectly isolate their gender feelings from all their other feelings. 
Mm -hmm. So why on earth should we expect it of trans people? Yeah, 100%. This is such an awesome conversation. Um, It is time for a break. So I'm going to call a a three-minute break for us here on the show. And we come back, uh, we're going to talk about LGB histories. We're going to talk about what you're working on next and a couple more things. Psst. Hey, listener, over here. Yeah, hi. You like podcasts, right? Sure. Or you wouldn't be listening. Let me tell you about a great new show telling stories written by people who are LGBTQIA2S+. It's called Strange Stories from Odd Folks. That's with an X. And season one is coming. Voices by Lee, Lexi Jones, and Tracy Clifton. It's got horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and more. Do yourself a favor. Go check it out. Season one begins on May 10th. Go to oddfolks.podbean.com, odd folks with an X, or search Strange Stories from Odd Folks, say it with me, with an X, wherever you get your podcasts. Meowdy, everyone. We are back. Um, So, Kit, we have more questions for you because, of course, we do. Um, so how do trans histories overlap with lesbian, gay, bisexual, and other sort of sexual minority histories? In a major way. I mean, so Miranda's already mentioned that, like, there are plenty of cultures where that distinction doesn't even make sense, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, that really rigid distinction between lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, etc., um, it's a Western distinction. It's also a really recent distinction. Like it was only yeah. in um, the second half of the 20th century that basically conservative groups, small C conservative groups on both sides um, were keen to say, well, we're just like everybody else, not like those other people. So um, conservative gay rights groups, for example, saying, don't worry, we're normative. We're just like everybody else. Um, and gender nonconforming people are kind of letting the side down. Um, that one of the um, most prominent lesbian organizations, the Daughters of Bilitis in the US, described butch lesbians as the worst publicity we can get. So really, um, really showing that gender nonconformity was seen as something that was going to get in the way of pursuing a kind of liberal rights-based agenda. Um, so it's a really recent thing. Um, and there's also been... Um, you know, like I said, there are plenty of cultures now where that distinction doesn't make sense. Um, and there have been plenty of contexts in the past where that hasn't made sense as well. Like the um, the first um, people in Europe to sort of start articulating um, sexuality, same-sex attraction as like a specific identity, described it in terms of the feminine soul heaving within the male bosom, which mm. just sounds like a wrong body narrative of transness, right? It sounds exactly yeah. the same. Um, so there's this really, really clear overlap. And I write in the book about some examples um, from um, medieval Middle Eastern culture and from early modern Japanese culture as well, where people were gendered differently based on what they did sexually. Like you would, your gender was seen differently if you did certain things sexually. Um, and I talk about the history of using prosthetics to like um, affirm your gender um, in sex mm. as well. Um so loads of overlap, and I think that should be a lesson for us in terms of community solidarity, right, as well. Yeah, yeah. So what's next for Kit? 
Um, so one of the things I'm working on is growing my own human. Um, I'm seven months pregnant mm, at the moment. Um, so that's um, <laughs> that's taking up quite a lot of my energy at the moment. Um, and I'm also, relatedly, I'm working um, on a proposal for a history of trans family, thinking about all the different ways that we've mm. thought about gender and family and the relationship between them in the past um, and how that might sort of inspire us to make families differently and, and better um, in the future, and also about why it is that about every year we have the first pregnant man. Like, why is it so hard for people to not think about this as something unprecedented? What is it that challenges yeah. people's brains about it so much? Um, so, I, yeah, I'm really excited to dive more into that um, once I'm back off parental leave. Love that. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's super exciting. Um, what is your advice for trans people living on so-called Turf Island, as the UK has been called? Yeah, it really is Turf Island here. Um, and I know <laughs> that, you know, there are there are different things that trans people are struggling with in different contexts all over the world. But um, my feelings about this are we can um, come up with arguments against turf ideology until we're blue in the face but what we really need is to preserve our energy for this um fight that we're inevitably having to go through as it looks increasingly likely that some of our legal rights might be taken away um is community solidarity and i think in order to we can't we can't do this we can't do any activism without um preserving the stability of our mental health and what's really important for that is making trans spaces um, and drawing links with other communities who are suffering equally from the government that we have at the moment. Um, so rather than retreating into kind of little splinter groups, um, instead trying to put as much emphasis as possible on what we have in common and build each other up um, through mutual aid and mutual affirmation um, as much as we can. That's mm. certainly what is sustaining me right now. And I'm sure um, I can't imagine how things are feeling um, in North America, but I'm sure there are some similar feelings going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so so personally, like I'm, I'm in Canada, so like the legislation hasn't started here, but you know, the trans hate, it's here, so. Uh, yeah, it's it's scary being a trans person in this day and age. Yeah, yeah, solidarity. Uh, so, is there any? Oh, sorry. Yeah, is we have our concluding questions now. Um, we just have three of them. I know we we got to manage our spoons today. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything that we missed about your book before we were trans, or any other work that you're up to that you'd like to make sure that you get a chance to say today? I'd really like to say how it's not just important to recognize how gender has never been uncontested or um, unmessed with or tied to the body just for kind of political reasons. It's also incredibly important because that's potentially liberating for everyone, right? Once we realize there's no traditional fixed binary way of thinking about gender, we can just start to play with it in a low stakes way that can enhance everyone's lives i think the more we realize that the more exciting and liberated our lives will be mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah. So that's, uh, I mean, that's a wonderful segue because uh, I, I feel like um, a lot of uh, the modern discourse around being trans is kind of framed around, you know, the negative experiences that we have. But more important is the joy that we get from being trans. So can you share one of your experiences with gender euphoria? This is such a lovely question. Um, more trans joy is what we need. Um, <laughs> I want to shout out um, the friends in Leeds who, when I first started saying, actually, now that I've moved here, I think they then pronouns are the right ones for me, really validated that in every um, situation and really helped me to feel finally comfortable in the um, gender that I was living in, really um, affirmed every time someone laughed at me for wearing dangly earrings or whatever, which um, I have plenty of context in my life where that happens. Um, it was my trans community here that um, made me feel like actually that was something affirming and special. Um, so shout out to other trans people who lift each other up. Mm, I love that. <laughs> We have a, an Ask Me Anything from the chat that I wanted to, to bring in before our final question. Um, Nick Creative asks, I am also a person who grew up in a household where we had to wear clothing from other families. I recognize now the impact clothing has played on my gender expression and my sexuality, along with my mental health, including body dysmorphia. What is your experience and research uncovered about the impact of clothing? Thanks, Nick. I relate to that so much as well. Um, Something that my research um, uncovered, which might or might not resonate with you, I think it resonates with me, um, is that we haven't always thought about clothing as just like a costume that we put on over our bodies. And it's just, a, you know, it's a set of, you know, external trappings, but it doesn't affect who we are inside. If you'd asked someone in the 17th century, they'd have said, you put on a man's outfit and you will be transformed into a man. They had this really um, different idea of what the relationship between the outside and the inside was. And I think, you know, much like um, I was, um, we were all saying before about how we have this rigid um, idea that trans people have to um, only have feelings about our gender that are um, not affected by any other aspect of our experience. Um, actually, if we think about it even for a minute, of course our clothes affect how we feel about our genders and sometimes they're a reflection of that and sometimes we put them on because we want to feel a certain way um, and so I think we're a lot closer to that kind of 17th century ideal than we like admit now. <laughs> um, I don't know if that resonates with you but that's certainly how it feels for me. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean personally like clothing can make a big deal, like you can get a lot of euphoria from you know dressing in a way that's not necessarily what you normally dress. So. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I had friends visiting this weekend to help with my wife's surgery recovery. Shout out to Trans Capybara. Um, and one friend was relaying to the other that um, my clothing style is basically just uh, rainbows, non-binary, and cats. <laughs> that's my whole style. I love it. Like, like that's it. There's no, there's no overall aesthetic beyond just those three things. <laughs> And then we, I mean, we hey, got into a whole discussion like, right? about, you know, it's it's complicated dressing your body when you're plus sized and trans mm. because there's there's, you know, this this mash of these two things. Like if I want to wear masculine pants, like I am 
I'm wider than people expect for a men's pant. And I'm also shorter than people expect for a men's pant. Mm. And so it's like, you know, even if I, it seems like the best case is finding something that's wide enough and then hemming the bottom to be shorter for me. Um, mm. But it's just like, I don't know. It's hard to find clothes that fit my body. It's like clothes manufacturers expect like width and height to increase in equal proportions. And it doesn't work that way. Because like, I mean, I used to be quite a bit heavier than I am right now. And I used, I would try to buy buy pants. I'm like, are these pants for a giraffe? What is happening? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, totally. (laughs) Uh, So let's get back on topic. Uh, Kit, are we... What would you like to make sure that folks know about your perspective on gender and non-binary or trans issues? I'd like people to know that history shows us we can change the way people think about gender. Um, We can always be challenging the way our society thinks. We can always be the odd ones out. We can always just play with gender and then change our mind and then play in a different way. And I think if more people felt okay about that, Gradually, you know, little by little, we'd change the way that our world thought about it. And that would be great. Yeah, I agree. A hundred million percent. (laughs) Well, um, thank you so much, Kit, for being our guest today. Y'all, Kit is a writer, an academic, a trans awareness trainer and heritage practitioner based in Leeds, UK. They are the author of Before We Were Trans, A New History of Gender, which you can find on Basic Books UK, Seal Press, copyright 2022 as well as a tenor horn player and enthusiast of Wetmoreland Walks. Check out kitham.com for more information. You can also find Kit on Twitter at K-R-H-E-Y-A-M on Twitter. Uh, now here are this week's clatter queries that you, our audience, can answer on our social media platforms. Uh, the first one is, what are your favorite stories or people from queer history? And the second is, who are some trans authors you'd like to shout out? Awesome. Thank you for submitting those questions for us, Kit. Um, so everybody, next week, our guest on Genderful is going to be Stevie Herner, she, her pronouns. We're discussing gender inclusivity in choral music. I am so excited. Um, I cannot wait. Um, so we also have a community update for you all. Thank you so much for making KMZ Mutual Aid such a resounding success. Not only did we raise $14,719.69 for KMZ's solar-powered electricity needs, (laughs) we also raised an additional $2,322.41 the cost of me getting a powered wheelchair. Um, It's amazing. I can't believe it. So thank you, everyone, Mm -hmm. for your generosity, your participation, um, just all the energy. There's still a ton of fulfillment happening. If you um, are in the Kimsey Mutual Aid server, like there's a bunch of events that people are posting for all of their streams that people unlocked. I got to see um, a couple of them over the weekend. They're very silly and wonderful. Um, so yeah, thank you all so much for that. There will be more mutual aid events coming eventually in the future. Keep your, your ears and eyes out for that. And um, again, thank you, Kit, for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant chatting to you both. Thank you, Miranda. Welcome to the show as a co-host. Jennifer <laughs> oh. <laughs> would like to thank our guests for being on this podcast. If you'd like to catch us live, join us on Mondays at twitch.tv forward slash gendermaster. 
Show notes will appear in the edited version of the show on Fridays on both YouTube and podcasting platforms. If you have a question you would like the host to answer or are gender diverse and would like to request an interview, please send an email to genderfulpodcast at gmail.com or sign up via the website at genderfulpodcast.com. As a gender diverse community, The Clatter wants to assure our listeners that we are prepared to moderate our spaces. We will get positive and negative feedback on these shows and topics, and we have a moderation team on our channels, socials, and Discord server ready to deal with this. Please join our Discord server at discord.gg forward slash meowster to meet the community and get a regular digest of solidarity resources. You can also support us with subscriptions on Patreon, following and reviewing us on your favorite podcasting platform are engaging with our posts and content on social media at genderfulpod and at gendermeowster. If you take a few moments to also rate the show, we will post any five-star reviews on our socials, so get creative. Mention a special interest of your own, a project you're working on, or even say hi to your comfort person in your review. What power? This show is made possible by volunteers, tips, and subscriptions. Shout out to the folks helping us coordinate guests, edit the podcast, moderate the live chat, and post on our socials. Artist credit for Jennifer. Jennifer's theme song is called Hope by Free Range Megs, a.k.a. Soma. The Gender Master logo was designed by That's Barnaby and edited with consent by Transgriffin. Jennifer's pre-show is wrangled by Juice Tex. Genderful is edited and mixed by Trans Griffin and Alexis Fandom. Genderful's social media is managed by Queer to Help. Genderful is hosted by Atlas O. Phoenix and Gender Master. Genderful is the intellectual property of Gender Master. All rights reserved. Trans, Trans rights, rights are human, human rights. rights. That's, That's right. right.